0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Anthony Hansen, a wine consultant for Haynes, Hansen & Clark, and also the Fine Wine Experience in Hong Kong. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks very much. It's very nice to see you. It's great to be here. So your childhood was in Nottinghamshire, and you were born after the Second World War.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, I was born in 1945, so just as the war was finishing. After the war, Great Britain was much impoverished, and there was food rationing until, I think, 1954. I remember when my when sugar rationing stopped, my mother said, I'm going to go out and buy 20 pounds, because there were no kilos at the time in England, of sugar. Of course, that wasn't the point. As soon as it wasn't rationed anymore, there was no point buying 20 kilos, because you could buy it as easy as possible. But you couldn't really get sweets. You had, um, so the privations were sort of the small luxuries, but it, it, they didn't really impinge on me, because I guess my parents were a sort of filter between me and, and that that had been, obviously, bomb damage in the major cities like London or Coventry or, or Birmingham. In the countryside, there hadn't been so much of that, but it was quite a difficult time for my parents to bring up my two elder brothers.
0: Both of your brothers were fairly older than you, so they'd been born before the war.
1: That's right. Yes, I had a, one brother who was ten years older than me and another who was seven years older. Uh, they would have had the experience of being children during the war, which must have been quite difficult. My father wasn't actually on active service because he'd been born in 1900, so he was in something called the Royal Observer Corps, which was keeping an eye out for German bombers arriving across the North Sea. And There were, there were many posts up and down the coast to check whether there were bombers coming in.
0: And your father, by trade, was a brewer. He had an interest in a beer company.
1: Yes, it was a family independent brewery based in Nottinghamshire, but delivering to Yorkshire, to Leicestershire, in the Midlands. And there was a lot of mining at the time, coal mining, so there was a strong demand for beer from the physical labor of getting the coal out of the ground, and it was a family business. It was a combination of two brewery companies that had merged in about 1880s, and he ended up being managing director of chairman of this merged business.
0: Both of your brothers went into the brewing firm. But they sort of told you, uh, not enough room for three.
1: That, that's absolutely right. My parents were determined that the two eldest sons would do that. And they said to me, uh, there's no room for you because your brothers are going to follow your father into the family business. He didn't own the whole of it. He owned something like one eleventh of half of it. But he ran it like a sort of personal fiefdom. And he was, at the time, in the 50s, You were able to say, well, I'd like my children to come into the business, which is what happened. So I was absolutely the lucky one because my parents said to me, "Uh, you can't do that. You're going to have to work out what you'd like to do. I knew I wanted to travel. So for some reason, I'd read one or two books about wine when I was 16 or 17. I knew I wanted to get a language if possible, and French seemed to be the answer. And the idea sort of germinated that trying to go into the wine trade would be a combination of being able to travel doing something really interesting because wine sounded like a fascinating area in which to earn my living. And I wanted to go to France. So my parents supported me in this. Nobody in my family had ever been to university. And therefore, when I said to my parents, I think I'd like to go and live in France at the age of 18 and try and work in the wine business, they were very supportive and helped me to fund that initially when I wasn't earning anything. I got jobs as interns or stagiaire first in Bordeaux, and then in Champagne, and then in Burgundy. So it started from that.
0: At least in the States, I feel like a lot of times people get into wine as sort of something that's opposite from their own life. Yes. I feel like you did too, because you got into wine, and then you went to France, and so it was very different than countryside. England and it was a different trade than your parents but it was still the drinks industry that's right and they were like oh well you know we made our career in the drinks industry so can you so it allowed you both of these things to both get away from your family and they could be supportive because it was somewhat under the same umbrella
1: absolutely no you're absolutely right they could identify with what I was trying to do and for me it was an escape really I was I'd been in um, boarding schools from the age of eight onwards up until the age of 17 And going to France and then finding I could talk in a different language meant that I started talking to people in a completely different way and saying things in another language, which I would never have been able to say or dared to say in my own language, and um, was discovering a
0: completely different country and a completely different culture. So we're really talking about the 1960s now.
1: Yes, that's right. I first came to France in 1963. Before I started working in Bordeaux and and Champagne, I'd done um, Four months doing a diploma at Grenoble University during November 1963. Because I knew I was trying to get into the wine trade, I heard about the Hospice de Bone wine auction, and I hitchhiked from Grenoble to attend the Hospice auction. I was aged 18. It was quite a journey, and I remember being dropped at the outskirts of Lyon, which of course is sort of more or less halfway between Grenoble and Bone. Couldn't get anybody to stop. I was on the the main road which runs around Lyon, the the outer boulevard, if you like. Eventually, something stopped, came to a halt, and I explained that I was trying to get from the road coming in from the east up to the northern exit from Lyon. Okay, get on board, said this driver. And In fact, it was a bulldozer, and the only thing which would stop was this bulldozer. So I climbed up. There was only one seat because you only had one driver in a bulldozer at the time. Uh, so I was standing in the sort of tipper at the front of the bulldozer as I went around the outskirts of Lyon. He then dropped me off because he was going off somewhere else. And then later, another car picked me up and started taking me north again. But um, my first arrival in Bone was thanks to a bulldozer taking me around uh, Lyon. When I got to Bone, I went straight to the hospice to taste the wine, went around, of course, talking to the growers behind their barrels because everybody's pouring their own wine. And one guy said to me, um, well, why are you here? And I explained how I'd hitchhiked, and I'd come to Bone for the weekend. And he said, where are you staying? So I said, well, I don't know. After the tasting, I'll go and find myself a hotel. So he said, well, you won't. All the hotels are full. There's absolutely no chance. You would better come and stay with me. It was, I'm still moved by that, because uh, in fact, he took me back to his home, uh, just off the Place Madeleine, very near to central Bone. And um, his wife said, well, look, this is where you're going to sleep. And just behind the kitchen was a sort of pantry with lots of shelves around the walls on which there were glass bottles containing the preserved carrots and artichokes and the peas and the beans that they'd prepared during the summer. So I slept on a, quite a narrow single bed underneath the shelves in this sort of pantry behind the kitchen. And they said, well, you, you must come and you must join us for lunch on the Sunday before the sale. I joined them for their lunch, which was a most extraordinary meal. It had about at least nine or ten courses. Then, of course, there was a cheese course, and there was certainly at least one or two puddings. Uh, so this was a Sunday lunch. The extent of the the warmth of the hospitality, the openness of this family in Burgundy that I had never met me before, and this extraordinary meal, which I had certainly never experienced in my eighteen years living in England, uh, this extraordinary banquet. And I still know them. I stayed in touch with the wife, who still lives in the same house off the Place Madeleine. And her husband, his name was Pierre Dumex. And it turned out he worked in the hospice cellars. And the reason why he was pouring the wine from the barrels because he was part of the hospice team. He wasn't actually a vigneron. Um, he died, but his widow, she um, was still in the same house.
0: So you did sort of a loop between Burgundy, Bordeaux, and Champagne at this stage in your career.
1: Yes, that's right. After Grenoble, I went to Bordeaux and got a job with a firm on the Quai des Chartrand called Schroeder & Schiller, and then I got another job with another merchant in Bordeaux called Louis Echenard. I was a stagiaire working in in the Chez. What I was involved in doing there was helping to rack the wines from one barrel to another to leave the lees behind so that you could put it into a clean barrel. or preparing um uh, wines for dispatch to different countries in barrel because at the time a lot of wine was sent off to england to belgium to holland to northern france and bottled where it was received
0: and i think this was a big eye-opening moment for you because you saw how the bottles were actually made
1: that's absolutely right and i, and I remember being quite shocked on one occasion uh, the first time i arrived in the in the cellar i was sent off join a, a group of, there was an older man and a younger man who was, whose job it was to go into the cellar to do the racking. So, we, this pair took me off to a dark end of one of these chaises and then they sat down and said, Well, it's time for breakfast. Out of their pockets, they got some bread and a knife and some rosette, some uh, saucisson. And another one got a, a bird out of his pocket and started to pluck a partridge, which he'd shot the day before. So, we didn't get down to work straight away. We, we got on the serious business of food. And then we did start doing some work and one of the, the things I do remember well was um, we were preparing a dispatch which was due to go to either Belgium or Holland of some half bottles of, I think it was Sant-steph, and we were drawing the wine off bigger barrels to make, I think it was six half barrels of this Santistef. When we'd filled up five barrels, we sort of ran out of wine. This was obviously a problem because we had to create six. So they used the wine which was used for topping up to make up the half barrel which was missing, which immediately, as a young naive person, I thought, well, hold on a minute. There are five genuine half barrels of saint Stef and one which is nothing like it at all. It's a topping up wine which is, doesn't remotely taste. It's probably a Bordeaux rouge. But anyway, I sort of said, "Are you sure this is okay?" Oh, this happens all the time. They said. Anyway, so we carried on. But it was an early example of being exposed to how easy it is to mix liquids together because there wasn't enough to complete the order.
0: Really, through the period of the 70s, you started to take it as your test to write a book about Burgundy.
1: Well, yes. I met my wife in the late 60s, and we married in 1968, and we went to Burgundy, and we then moved to Bone, And I got a job with a firm in Bone called bouchard et fils who were looking for somebody who spoke English in order to help prospect foreign markets, where they didn't have any importers. And after a bit, I realized that some of the most interesting wines I was tasting in restaurants or whatever were, in fact, bottled by the domains, not bottled by the famous merchants necessarily in Beaune or Nuit Saint Georges. So I started going to visit the growers in the different villages. For instance, up in gervais Chambartin, Armand Rousseau was bottling a lot of his wines, Henri Gouges in Nuit Saint Georges, Marquis d'Anjaville in Volnay, the Ramonet family in Chassagne Morachet. These are all estates who were the pioneers of domain bottling. And indeed, American buyers had linked in with these domains in the 30s, before the Second World War, well ahead of what the British were doing. The British were happy to be dealing with the big negociants in Beaune and Louis-Saint-Georges and shipping generic blends very often, which were bottled in London, sometimes with labels which had famous Burgundy village names on them, but they weren't necessarily 100% from these villages. So here. I saw that there was a link to be made with what i had first spotted in Bordeaux, really, because at the time, in the 50s and the 60s, in the early 70s, a lot of Burgundy was made by peasant farmers who were good at cultivating their vineyards, but they did not necessarily have wineries which were well-equipped with vats or clean barrels. They certainly didn't have systems for controlling the temperature of the fermenting must. And this meant that a lot of wine was made which perhaps had faults uh, might have high volatile acidity was on its way to being vinegary um, these wines had come from genuinely from vineyards in Van romane or Nuit Saint-Georges or Pommard or whatever it may be but they might not have been perfect the wines would be picked up by the local negotiants, who then would blend them with other wines which were of perhaps better quality from these individual villages but then they might have to uh, or they did believe that they had to clean them up to, to get rid of any aromas or flavours which might reflect the fact that they hadn't been made in perfect conditions. But also, as they were often made from vineyards which had perhaps been producing big crops, they were lacking in fruit or lacking in colour. And at the time, a lot of quote-unquote improvement happened with wines from the south of France or from North Africa, because Algeria was still part of France at the time. And there was a big business between Algeria and France, where improving wines, Grenache grown in North Africa, would be brought in deep in color, high in alcohol, and would be blended with wines which were thin or lacking in structure. Uh, 10% or 15% of wine from North Africa would give a color and an alcoholic backbone and some body.
0: And this was a real aha moment for you. You realized that this had happened or was going on because of your experience in Bordeaux and And you realized that a domain was bottling their vineyards and that was what was getting into the bottle and you were less aware of this previously because it wasn't such a big thing in the UK market. It was a different kind of market and it had been more accustomed to these Negocian bottlings. And so because you were there on the ground, you saw this ahead of time. And when you originally wrote this in your book, it became a little bit of a thing.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. Because I was going to taste at these domains and tasting out of the barrels, and meeting the people who were actually making the wine, I fell in love with Burgundy straight out of its barrel. When it was 100% Pinot Noir and coming from a village like Maurice Saint Denis or, or Chambon Musigny. you taste it out of the barrel when it's young. And as, as I'm sure you know, uh, young Burgundy doesn't have very high tannins, contrary to what happens in Bordeaux. You can taste and appreciate these wines when they're youthful. They have these amazing lovely red fruit, black fruit, Pinot Noir aromas and a fruitiness and a texture and a silkiness in the palate, which means that you can understand them and you can appreciate them when they're youthful. Young Burgundy can be absolutely lovely, even though it's also sometimes going to make great old bottles if it's got the structure and the tannins. So having, as it were, fallen in love with authentic Burgundy at the domain level, I realized what a lot of mediocre wine was actually being shipped to the UK and to some other countries as well, because Belgium and Holland were also doing the same sort of thing, and Germany as well. A lot of improved wine was being shipped to lots of export markets at the time. and Many English people had no idea what real Burgundy tasted like, because they had been exposed to something else by the trade on both sides of the channel. And The British were just as much at fault as the French. Both sides were making good money from this, and they could justify their existence and believe they were doing something really good, because the merchant would say, well, look, what I'm delivering you is much better than what the growers made, which it was true at the time, because many faulty wines were being made at the time. So an improvement in quality was happening, but not enough good wine was being made at the domain. So during the 70s and the 80s, what we've seen, uh, late 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, we've seen a complete change of gear by many, many Burgundy growers, who used to have to sell these not very good, somewhat thin, lacking in colour wines to the local trade at low prices because they couldn't command high prices for the wines. Because they needed arranging, they needed controlling, and they needed improving. This changed as growers became unsatisfied with having to sell their wines for not very high prices, being at the mercy of merchants who could control the prices. They were, of course, at the mercy of the weather, as one always is if you're a grower. Um, but so more and more people began. To in the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s, to invest in improving their facilities, improving their wineries, equipping themselves with temperature control systems, which allowed them to either cool the must or to warm it, and allowed them to make wines which could stand alone, which did not need improving. And if they could stand alone, many growers said, instead of just bottling 10 or 20 or 30% of my production, I'm going to see if I can't move to bottling 40% of my production, and next year I'll bottle at 60%. They needed to sell some in barrel to local traders because they needed cash flow. And then as the years go by, they'll be able to afford to keep back the better wines and won't have to get cash flow in by selling them in bulk.
0: You were really fascinated by this topic of domain burgundy at the time when it really started to become more and more present. There were becoming more and more domain-bottled burgundies. And you were witnessing this change of something that you were interested in And then the difference between, say, you and a lot of people is you wrote a book.
1: Yes, that's right. Quite rapidly, I realized that there was no information about these domain bottling properties. So I would take notes and one domain in one village would recommend that I go to another domain to meet their friend in the next door village or whatever. By the time I'd finished living in Burgundy, I'd visited something like 180 domains and made notes about them. And I knew that there was a wine series at the time published by Faber and Faber. And it already had a very good book on Bordeaux written by David Peppercorn. It had a great book on Sherry written by Julian Jeffs, who was actually the editor of the whole series. But it didn't have a book on Burgundy. So I thought, well, I've I've written a book pretty much. So I took it to them and delivered what was a lot of new research, really, about these 180 or 200 domains to Julian Jeffs. And he took it away and read it. And then We had a meeting, and he said, Well, look, what you've done is something original. It hasn't been done by anybody else, but it's not a book. Uh, Take this away. So he he gave me all my sheets back, and he said, Now you've got to go off and write the book, because I need a chapter about the history of Burgundy. I need about the winemaking. I need something about the viticulture and the vineyards. I need something about the Appalachians. So my heart sank because there were lots of other books talking about the history of Burgundy and whatever, and that had already been done. So it seemed to me I was being asked to do something which existed in the published world already but I ended up having to accept what he said. Uh, So I took it away. I was working full-time in the wine business at the time, so it was quite difficult to find the time to do the extra chapters. And it took me the best part of 10 years, really, to do a chapter a year, because I had to learn something about geology, for instance, which I'd never studied at school. So I had to read around the subject and then go back to Burgundy to try and understand the rock formations, etc. Eventually, I went back and said, look, okay, well, here are your eight extra chapters. And And he said, well, this is absolutely fine, but the stuff you'd written about the growers is now completely out of date, because you did that 10 years ago. Go away, and now update what you did. So, of course, I then had to rewrite the stuff about the growers. So, the book finally came out in 1982. I'm greatly indebted to my wife and many other people who encouraged me to finish it, because I almost gave up on it many times. But luckily, it did get finished.
0: There were several key topics that were coming up at this time. So... As we move out of the 70s and into the 80s when the book was published, some of those key topics were the fact that there was a lot of herbicides and fertilizers being used and it was changing the soil, the fact that clones had been introduced, so the vine material was different. There had been a lot of replanting around this time, and so there was a lot of young vines in the region and in some areas more than others. And the fact that there was a rise in what we might think of as oenologists, And the, as far as I read you, Anthony Hansen method is to look where the myth and the history meets the reality of today, and then put that on the page. And you sort of do that for each of those topics.
1: Yes. It became evident, I guess in the 60s, I think, that people were sometimes planting Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays, which were not necessarily producing what they wanted. Also, there was disease in the vineyards. There were many virus damaged vines, and you could look at the vineyards and see there was a whole circle of yellow leaves, corn way, uh, leaf roll uh, problems. So they were trying to identify vines which were going to be resistant to these various diseases. A national research program was put into place to try to identify clones which were going to be resistant to the viruses and also which would produce uh, a sufficient alcohol, uh, a good balance of acidity. And it's a long process because you have to identify a vine which is in good health and which is giving the sort of grapes that you want. You then have to check whether it is free of disease. And you then have to multiply it. And then you have to multiply it again in order to produce enough wood to be able to sell it to people to plant. And then you have to wait for three or four years before it starts yielding. So it's at least a 12 or 15 or 20 year process before Having identified a good mother vine, you end up having grapes from it and wine from it. The first clonal selections had tended to identify quite high-producing Pinots, which were virus-free, but often the, the wine which came from their grapes was lacking in the structure and the fruit and the density and the intensity and the length of flavour that people were looking for. So it needed a second generation of clonal selection and a third generation of clonal selection. After the Second World War, of course, all the armaments factories, they didn't have anything else to do. So those armaments factories were moved over to making fertilizers from the, the ingredients which had gone into making armaments. And there was a large amount of chemical fertilizers available. The salesman would go round explaining to the growers that they ought to be fertilizing their vines because the grower had pruned and taken away the wood. The grower had then gone in and harvested the bunches of grapes and taken them away. And the case was made that your vine having given you this fruit and you having taken the the branches away from it, you should give back. You should give it back some fertilizer to feed it and thank it for what it gave you during the harvest. It gives you your livelihood. So, of course, many growers thought, well, yes, I should. So they bought the fertilizers, they put them on, and an excess of potassium and nitrogen fertilizers resulted in the soils becoming unbalanced and many wines being produced with lower acidities. But it took a long time for people to realize that this was happening. And at the same time, people didn't know how to combat grey rot. There was a lot of grey rot problems in the 60s and the 70s. I remember the harvest of 67s, 68, where there was a terrific amount of grey rot The Hospice de Bone auction was cancelled in 1968 because the grapes were so unhealthy that they couldn't put the wine on the market. And people thought that they could treat with chemicals against grey rot, which it it never worked. Or else they thought, well, there's nothing I can do to prevent grey rot. If the weather's been bad just before the harvest and my grapes have gone rotten, I'll pick them, I'll put them in the vat, and I'll just hope that it's going to turn out all right. So vats were filled with bunches of grapes which were riddled with grey rot. So of course, the resulting wine ended up smelling of mould and rot, and then it had to be sold to a negotiant who would clean it up by filtration or by whatever method, and improve it by adding something from outside the region. So it was was another contribution to what we were talking about earlier. Um, Over the 60s and the 70s, people realised that grey rot couldn't be treated with spraying. The way to resolve it was to sort the bunches, which became the
0: solution. It was changing the soil pH, that they were adding all these chemicals. Yes. And so that's something that's become very known now, that because the soil pH was changing, that the wines were showing less acidity. Yeah. But it's surprising that, at least to me, on rereading your book, that you had mentioned this quite a long time ago as an emerging problem, and in fact, it became one.
1: Yeah, that's right. The first edition of my book came out in 1982 which was the the dawn of big changes which were about to happen. There was an influential consultant who became active in the 80s called Guy Akkad, and he did a lot of analyses of soils. He worked with people like Etienne Grivo and Von Romane and it was a very beneficial moment of identifying what minor elements might be missing in the soil and also how the pH had been Changed by this, additions of fertilizers, and several people worked with him. He also, however, had a a winemaking system which depended on um, big additions of sulfur dioxide, and also, which was beneficial, he recommended to many people that they should buy systems for being able to control the temperature, either to lower the temperature so you could get pre fermentation, cold soaking, or in Vintages, which was uh, lots of hot weather, you could cool the must so that it would not overheat. And in the 85s, towards the end of the 80s, many people were able to equip themselves with methods of controlling the temperature during fermentation, which had not been there before. He was a very important analyzer of the soils, and many growers did depend on his soil analysis, and it helped them wake up to the fact that they needed to stop putting on many of the chemicals or the fertilizers they had been doing before. That was one of his most beneficial inputs. His work as an enological consultant was less admired. He was taken on, for instance, by the Clos de Tart for a time, but the Momasa family who owned it then, I think only kept him on for 18 months or two years or so because it didn't work. And Then his influence diminished because what he was recommending owners of top vineyards to do Was not really appropriate for the top estates. Had he concentrated his efforts on improving the quality of Bourgogne Rouges, village level wines, that would have been really very welcome at the time. But sadly, that didn't happen. And he moved on from Burgundy in, I guess, the mid-90s, I think. It was a brief passage where he was the sort of the fashionable consultant oenologist. And he was influential, but the influence didn't last.
0: Around the late 50s into the 60s and 70s, you started to see lab analysis that could tell you things like whether your mallow was complete. And this held a lot of uh, appeal to small producers, especially who needed this help, and then large producers who could afford this help. But eventually there became this concern that this was homogenizing the wines. So consulting enology and labs were tending to make wines that tasted the same. And so then people started to say, well, I don't know if that's a good thing.
1: The enological station in Beaune, I'm not sure when it was established, but it was probably established after Phylloxera, and that is still there. And there was an influential director when I was first in Burgundy called Max L'Eglise, who had a system where he thought that the way to solve the problem of Burgundy's lacking in color and lacking in fruit and structure was to heat the grapes to a very high temperature. And he tried to recommend to many people to do this. Burgundians are quite an independent bunch, and not everybody went along with this, although it was the state enological advice system. And there were also independent enologists doing it. Very few Burgundians have been influenced by consultant enologists in the way that in Bordeaux you get major people who have been very influential and then become international consultant enologists traveling to many other countries. In Burgundy, Yes, there are laboratories, and people can take their wines there and get the analyses done. It can tell them whether the malolactic is finished and whether the sugars are done and whether other things are correct. People use these. But I think the social networks of growers in their villages, how they taste each other's wines, they talk together, and they compare. And this is a very strong web, which is one of the reasons why Burgundy is so interesting that the growers themselves do not depend on outside consultants to tell them how to make their wine. And I don't think you've got, not in the 80s and not today, a homogenization of the styles due to the power of certain consultant inologists, which we do see in, for instance, Bordeaux or in other areas, because these are people who are very close to their soil and they're close to what is expected of their different villages, and therefore, just as they were not influenced in Burgundy by the... Robert Parker's style of trying to go for, as we see it in Europe, deep-coloured wines with quite high extractions, big structures, sometimes a lot of influence of new oak. Um, This did not impinge very greatly on Burgundy. There are 10 or 12 or 15 domains who were influenced by that, but nothing like the influence that took place in Bordeaux. Burgundians remained quite independent and quite resistant to outside influences.
0: What was the reception to the book in 1982?
1: Some Burgundians felt that I shouldn't have talked about the region as openly as I did, as it were, washing the dirty linen in public, which is what you could say I was doing when I was talking about the problems of the need for blending in the past and what had been the history of it. Many people didn't want that spoken about or certainly not written about. Uh, On the other hand, there were other people who welcomed the arrival of the book very much. I mean, I wasn't the first person to be writing about individual domains. Alexis Lachine, in his book The Wines of France, which I think were probably published in the early 60s or the late 50s, and uh, Schoenmaker, I think, had written his encyclopedia which covered the domains as well. There were people who had written about the growers, but nobody had done one which covered quite such a big range of them, and therefore that was very welcome. We had over 200 growers described in detail, as well as describing the negotiants who had been the powerful movers of commerce in Burgundy. They are also described in the book. So people were suddenly able to see all the colors of Burgundy. And many people did talk to me about how they would come to Burgundy with the book, but they'd put it under the driver's seat because they didn't want to leave it in full view because they knew that some Burgundians didn't welcome it. But it was useful. By the end of the 1980s, it was obvious that I needed to update it because things had changed a lot and they were changing. And Therefore, what had been a bit of a revelatory book describing the the slightly murky past of parts of the Burgundy trade and also describing an awakening change in how the wines were being bottled, made, etc. By the time we got to the late 80s, there were many more people doing domain modeling and one needed to expand the book and also talk about how things were going forward in a very positive manner. So in
0: 1995, you revised the book and you republished it, again called Burgundy by Anthony Hansen. But you took up some of the things that had changed in the meantime, one of them would have been sorting, right? Yes,
1: that's absolutely right. i started researching an update of the book in about nineteen ninety-one or nineteen ninety two, and eventually this second edition came out in nineteen ninety-five. And by that stage, I think the key domain who I think was I think the first to introduce a sorting table was the DRC, was Domain de la That They've now had I think three or four different types of sorting tables, so they're constantly improving this. And many people realized that eliminating rotten or unripe or damaged grapes, leaving them in the vineyard. And then sorting tables were often bought and installed in the wineries so that groups of sorters could stand on either side of this moving carpet and eliminate what was unripe or what was rotten or what was damaged so that only healthy grapes could go into the vats. And this did allow the production of clean wines Which were mold free, which had not been the case in the 60s and the
0: 70s. And at the same time, we started to see the development of some more vine age. So in that 13 year window, we see some vines getting older. So one of the first concerns that you had in the 82 book was look, there's a lot of young vines here. And then that starts to get older. But at the same time, there's a real realization that clones can be problematic.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. The replanting after the World War meant that there were more mature vines coming along, and also a second generation of clones were coming on stream, or else some domains were beginning to select their best vines in their own domains and produce massile selections, so that they weren't dependent on the national selections. They could identify virus-free, healthy vines of peanuts producing small bunches with thick skins, and therefore what was being replanted. Uh, was often of much higher quality than what had been planted in the 50s and the 60s. And indeed, because of the quality of some of these pinots, you can start incorporating the wine from these bunches into a blend, or indeed selling it when the vines are much younger, when the vines are sometimes uh, five or six or seven years old, where that wouldn't have been the case with high-producing straight-growing pinots, for instance, which are easy to cultivate because the shoots grew straight up you'd have to wait for the vines to be 12 or 15 or 20 years old before they were giving wine a sufficient concentration.
0: One of the threads that runs through both books is the conversation about chapitalization. Yes. And you actually point out that this dates back to the Abbey of Citeaux. It's a long-standing practice, but your objection to it in the book in ninety-five is that sometimes it's overused, and this has resulted in the past in some wines that were less compelling.
1: That's absolutely right. If we remember that in the 50s and the 60s, there were often some quite high yielding Pinots, and these were producing wines where there was lots of volume, but the alcoholic degrees were perhaps quite low. When the grapes were picked, the grapes would give maybe 10.2 or, or 10.6 worth of alcohol. Now, that is below the legal permitted minimum yield to make a volnay or to make a Pomar or whatever. And therefore, it was permitted that growers could add the equivalent of 2 alcoholic degrees worth of sugar so to take a 10.3 up to 12.3 which was suddenly above the 12 degrees which might have been the minimum limit now that was fine but in fact it wasn't always controlled in the in the wineries and sometimes you would get somebody picking grapes where the grapes were giving 9.8 or 10.1 and then adding the equivalent of 3 degrees worth of sugar because there was nobody actually standing behind their vats to count the sugar bags So a wine which is 30 degrees of alcohol, which actually was picked when it was less than 10, is dominated by the alcohol. You're not impressed by the fruit intensity or by the aromas. And therefore, in the 60s and the 70s, there were often over wines. Basically, they had the alcohol level, but that had come from the sugar bags, and it hadn't come from the concentration from well-ripened grapes. In the 82 book, particularly, I was talking about that as a problem. By the '95 update, it was becoming less of a problem, and today, because of global warming and because of climate change, the springs in Burgundy are much earlier than they used to be, and the harvests are earlier. This allows a summer to produce more natural sugars, and therefore we get higher levels of sugars being produced in the grapes than ever was the case before, and there are many vintages where no chaptalisation is necessary today and none takes place.
0: So one of the people that you mentioned in that chapitalization conversation is Hubert de Monti, and the point that you make is that somewhat by accident he had not added sugar and then found that wine to be uh, really good as a result, and so then he was a sort of apostle or prostatilatizer of not chapitalizing in the 80s, which was kind of contrary to what the normal thought was.
1: That's absolutely right. He'd discover that one of his wines, the one which where he would misjudged the amount of sugar he added, he'd put in less than he intended, but that Particular cuve came out to be so perfumed and so delicate and good fruit intensity, lovely length, and it also aged very well. And because he was a greatly admired figure, and many people tasted with him, and he tasted in other people's cellars as well, his influence spread wide from village to village. And he was a guru for many people in the sixties and seventies and early eighties. He handed over to his son Etienne from the nineteen ninety vintage onwards. But during the seventies and eighties, he was a great figure, and he was very influential on me. The wine which sort of almost turned me on to the beauty of great Burgundy was a a 1966 Volnay Taipier from De Monti. And uh, it was Becky Wasserman and her then-husband coming to dinner with my wife and I when we were living in Bone in the late 60s. They arrived carrying a bottle of Volnay Taipier 1966 from De Monti. It was completely delicious, and we all went off and bought lots of bottles from him at the time. It wasn't at all expensive then. And we drank this wine as a young wine when it was only two and a half or three years old for several years. And it was a proof. It was an early example that, you know, young volney can be completely delicious and you don't have to keep it forever.
0: When I've talked to a number of people, they've noted Hubert de Monti as somebody who was very concerned about the taste of the appellation of the crew being in the glass. And I can see how that would really appeal to you as sort of a mentor yeah, figure.
1: Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. And tasting around his cellar with him, which I was lucky enough to do many times, one would taste the village-level Volnay, which was hardly ever sold on export markets. Then he would make a premier cru, which was a combination of two or three little vineyards where he didn't have enough to have a whole vat. And then you'd start tasting the Volnay Champon and the Volnay Taipier. And then you'd taste the Pommard Pézerol, and then you'd taste the Pommard Rougien. Those were his four great wines when I first knew it. And the differences between them was extraordinary. And then he managed to expand the domain by buying some Volnay les mittons and some pouligny montrachet le caillere So suddenly there was a white wine as well there.
0: And one of the other figures that was really important to you, and then white or burgundy, was also in Volnay, and that was Jacques Donderville.
1: Yes, that's right. The Donderville domain had been absolutely, in the 1930s, involved in the creation of the Appellation Contrôle system. And along with Henri Gouges in Louis-Saint-Georges, Jacques d'Angeville's father had been outraged by the way his wines were sometimes blended if he sold them in barrel to local négociants. He took the négociants to court. You've talked about this when you were interviewing um, Guillaume d'Angeville. Because his grandfather took the négociants to court, the local négociants did no longer wish to buy from him in barrel, and therefore d'Angeville was forced to bottle the wines himself. That got him on the On the road of domain bottling, and he's never looked back. So, Guillaume d'Angeville's father, Jacques, was also a very conscientious and careful winemaker who was operating also as a broker, bringing together wines from many domains for export to the States. He was one of the burgundy growers who was helping the growth of domain bottled burgundies in the USA.
0: That was something I hadn't realized until I spoke to you that he'd been sort of a scout for other domain. Burgundies that then made their way into the U.S. market.
1: Yes, Dojaville was the person who um, who Ramonet and Rousseau would ring up and say, look, I've got my thing ready, and where do we group it, and and how do we do it?
0: Somebody else that made a big impact on you and your writing and your thought about Burgundy was Aubert Duvalin.
1: Yes, I was very lucky to meet Aubert. It was um, Becky and Bart Wasserman, who I think also had met him. I'd met him because we happened to be on a similar course at the Enological station in Bone, but I hadn't got to know him at all well. But when I was going to visit different growers and trying to learn about Domaine Burgundy, quite often I would go to a domain and at the end of the tasting, the grower would say to me, Est-ce que vous connaissez les Wassermannes qui habitent Saint-Romain? Do you know the Wassermann family who live in Saint-Romain, which is where they were at the time? And after I'd heard this about three or four times, I thought, this is ridiculous. I've got to meet these people because my wife and I were English people living in and There weren't that many other foreigners around. So I went to Saint-Romain to try and meet up with them and didn't know what address they were at. So I went into the Hotel La Roche in Saint-Romain and asked, is there an American couple living here? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Just go down the road, turn right. It's the first house on the right. I went down, banged on the door, and Becky Wasserman answered the door and said to me, straight away she said um, have you come for a bath so i said no uh, ah the hotel's always sending us people down here for a shower or bath because they don't have baths for all of the rooms it was a very basic hotel now i said i've come because i keep hearing about you and i'd like to say hello and i'd like will you come and have dinner with us in bome so they did come and they brought this bottle of volno in 1966 i was talking about so it, it was the beginning of a great friendship which goes back 50 years i, I don't remember the first moment when uh, Aubert and Becky and I we were around a bottle. But by the time that they moved to, uh, to Bouillon, Aubert had become a close friend. And I think he was just finishing working with the Maison Leroy, the merchant business in Auxediris, because, of course, the Leroy family owns 50% of Domaine de la Romanie Conti. And when Aubert came back to join the, the Burgundy wine trade, he did a stint as a stagiaire, as an intern, with Leroy to learn something about the merchant side before he went to work full-time at the domain. So he was somebody who had had experience of the Négociant world, as well as being profoundly involved, of course, in the domain world. This person who was a part of the family owning the Domaine La romani Conti. So it did mean that at least once or twice a year, I was able to go to the Domain and taste down the range of wines or up the range of wines. So uh, being able to taste Echizeau and Grands Echizeau and Richbourg and, and Latache and Romain Conti out of barrel with Aubert it was an extraordinary experience, which I suppose I was one of the luckiest people in the world to be able to do that.
0: Somebody else I think that you knew and learned a bit from was Jacques Seyss at Dujac.
1: That's absolutely right. Jacques had bought the Domaine Grailler in Maurice saint denis in I suppose the early 60s which was more or less the time uh, Well, I I was coming to live in Burgundy in in the mid 60s and then the late 60s when I first got married so he and his American wife Roz were friends from then and he was somebody who travelled a lot either going to California or or receiving winemakers from Australia from New Zealand to be part of his winemaking team vintage after vintage and these would sometimes be the same people and sometimes they'd have fresh people in He was a very international, well-traveled Burgundy winemaker who'd come from the outside. And he was certainly a catalyst to change. He loved tasting in other people's domains. And he was a very active person involved in spreading the word about how it's perfectly possible to make domain-bottled Burgundy to come from being unheard of. His family had some very terrific contacts in the world of gastronomy. He was making wines which restaurants and top tables, three star restaurants, could buy and list without having to wait forever. Uh, He'd seen what was happening at DRC where very often whole bunches were being used for the fermentation. Because of that, he was a pioneer in expanding the use of whole bunch fermentation, which of course brings complexities and perfumes and a special texture and a length of flavor to wines, so long as people are using fully ripened bunches
0: something else that changed in between the publication of the first edition and the second edition is that parker wrote a book on burgundy and matt kramer wrote a book on burgundy and those weren't present in the market when he wrote that first book
1: yes that's absolutely right in my book in 1982 i'd done something which had never been done before which was to produce a map of the clo but which showed who owned what and where they were within the clo matt kramer He didn't have so many maps in his book, but he did have a listing of who were the owners in the Grand Cruze, which was certainly interesting. So if you wanted to track down something and you weren't quite sure where to get it from, you had the name of the person whose door you needed to bang on. That book was very valuable because it listed who were the holders in the different famous vineyards.
0: This is the pre-internet age. And so a lot of these details were scattered amongst records in city halls or in obscure books that may not have been translated into English.
1: That's right. To produce The Map of the Clos I had to go to the town hall in Nuit Saint-Georges, for instance, and sit down and spend hours and hours and hours going through the commune records to see whose name was on this particular plot. Uh, the Robert Parker book, which came out in 1990, uh, was a big thick book, and there were some very good things in it, but also he, he was a bit muddled by what was great Burgundy and what was not great Burgundy. He confused some people who were still doing a lot of blending with others who were making really genuine wines. It's interesting that he never updated that book, possibly because he realized his focus was Bordeaux wines, was Napa Valley wines, was Chateauneuf-du-Pape, and he was never completely comfortable, I think, in Burgundy. And Then he um, took issue with the Favelet Company, alleging that the wines that they had shipped to the States was not the same as what he'd been given to taste in Nuit, which François Févelet, who's a a very straightforward person, felt that this could not be allowed to pass without challenge. So he challenged Parker on this, and Parker had to retreat. Um, Many Burgundians had felt that Févelet shouldn't do such a thing because Parker was a very influential and uh, powerful person. and They shouldn't uh, risk offending a major journalist, but Favelet did take Parker to court. Parker had to retreat on this and it was perhaps one of the reasons why he, um, he knew he wasn't absolutely at his ease in Burgundy and he never came back and, and updated that book and he subsequently, quite quickly, appointed different people to cover Burgundy for him.
0: One of the points you've made to me at another time is that it was the exit of Bordeaux merchants from the Bordeaux market following 2010 2008, 2009, when there was a period of economic decline in the states, and then the rise of the Chinese market. So then those merchants left the Bordeaux market and went into the Burgundy market and found it more interesting than they maybe thought, and then prices took off.
1: Yes, that's right. It was a a, a big shame that in the 2009 or 2010 vintage, it was at a moment when mainland China and Hong Kong in a large way was beginning to become thirsty for good wine and was drinking a lot more wine than he ever did before. And Bordeaux perceived Asia as being somewhere where if Europe or if America was no longer buying, they would be able to sell everything in Asia because the new demand and the enormous number of people in China would take on their wines. And many people, the Chateaus and the Negotiants, took advantage of that in 2009, and particularly 2010, to increase the prices enormously to ridiculous levels. And the result was that two or three years later, it became obvious that prices had peaked. And those people who had bought at the very high prices of the second and third and fourth tranches of the 2010 vintage, for instance, had got their fingers burnt and had lost uh, lost a lot of money in it. And they became disgusted by what had been happening in Bordeaux. And many people looked elsewhere for, you know, if we don't want to allow ourselves to have that happen again. By this stage, because understanding of Burgundy had got greater. And also, the quality of winemaking had got much greater. Many people who in the past had felt, oh, Burgundy, it's such a nightmare. It's a holy grail trying to find Burgundy which is delicious and regular and whatever. The pursuit of the holy grail and the pursuit of trying to avoid being disappointed by Burgundy, this conversation, these reflections were diminishing when we got into the new millennium because there was much more good Burgundy around of regional level, of village level, of premier crew level, etc. So, by the time we get to sort of 2009, 2010, 2011, many people were coming to France. They weren't necessarily spending much time in Bordeaux, but they were looking where else should we go? And the answer is they were coming to Burgundy and discovering that there was much more wine around of really beautiful quality, and that the prices were high because Burgundy is rare. There's not very much of it made, and the good wines are always high. But once they discovered Pinot Noir in all its deliciousness, many people never look back. And they they realise that Burgundy is an absolutely fascinating area. And you can drink the wines when they're youthful, you can enjoy them as they're maturing, and they turn into long-living wines. Because Burgundy in the 50s or 60s didn't have a reputation for being long-living. It was thought of something you need to drink it early. But it's not true. A a well-made Burgundy can last for 20, 30, 40 years. So um, there has been much greater demand for Burgundy since around about two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. And I started working for Christie's wine department in two thousand. And in two thousand and four, two thousand five, we saw the opportunity of coming to Burgundy and, and trying to persuade the director of the Hospice de Bone and the Mayor of Bone to allow us for Christie's to run the Hospice de Bone auction, which had always been run by a local auctioneer. And it was The barrels of wines were sold immediately after the harvest to the local negotiants. And uh, in order to participate in the sale, you had to buy, let's say, eight barrels of this particular bone. It meant that as a private individual, you, you wouldn't want to do that. And the sale was dominated by the local traders, but it wasn't raising very much money because often the wines were not of great quality. There was no pressure to increase the quality of the wines from the local negociants because had they been pressurizing the Hospice de bone to make the best possible wines in the world, they'd have had to pay much more for them at auction in November after the harvest than they wanted to pay. So there was always a situation where the harvest would happen. Everybody was know it would be a good harvest. The Hospice de Bone auction was due to happen the third weekend of November. Between the harvest and the Hospice auction, there would be very little talk about whether the harvest was good or bad because anybody who said it's a really great vintage would find that this charity auction, the prices would flame
0: upwards. And one of the things you point out in your book in '95 is that they were afraid of a knock-on effect, that then if a Negociant paid more at the Hospice de bone and the prices went up, then the growers would charge more for sending their grapes and finished wine to the Negociant as well. So it would affect the whole region, and they were hesitant to have that happen.
1: Yes, that's right. The Hospice de Bonne auction was sometimes a thermometer or certainly a barometer showing what is the strength of demand at the time and what is the way the vintages perceive perceived. So the prices at the Hospice for years and years and years were a measure of the market. And therefore, the Négocéans, of course, wanted to make sure that they didn't have to pay any more than they, they had to.
0: And you are actually fairly critical of the Hospice de Bonne in a 95 book. So... It- In many ways, the Hospice to Bone has been a thread throughout your whole career, because you went there for the tasting, you stayed in Bone, and then you were somewhat critical of it in the 95 book, and then you were hired on to sell the wines uh, later, and so then you made some advisory comments to them about how the wines could be improved. Is that correct?
1: Yes. I mean, I think I was critical of of the Hospice in the 1982 version, actually, and then I updated the criticism in 1995, because Although some improvements had been made, there was still a lot lot which still needed to be done. It's a tricky business because the winemaker has to produce wines which can be tasted within six or seven weeks of the harvest, and approximately 30 years ago, I think, an era took place where the new wines were put into barrels which had been used once or twice before. And some of those barrels had been affected by volatile acidity. Therefore, there was a vinegary taint. And something like 170 barrels had to be withdrawn from the sale and sent for distillation. After that, the hospice decided we will buy new barrels every year. And that's what they've done ever since. And to some extent, that is a good thing because people know that they're going to get freshly made wine in a fresh barrel and they can always rack it from that barrel and put it into an older barrel when they've received it if they wish to but there are other of the lighter cuvées which certainly do not benefit from having been fermented 100% in new barrels there are two cuvées of merceau for instance which are not premier cru merceaux and no grower in merceau would dream of putting their basic village level in 100% new oak they would perhaps use 20 or 30% of new oak and the the rest would be one year old or two year old barrels So I'm hopeful that over the coming years, there's a new winemaker, of course, who took over two or three years ago, Ludivine Griever, who's extremely talented. And she will, I hope, find some ways of perhaps moving the hospice in terms of its use of new oak over the coming years. It's a complicated thing to manage.
0: And since you wrote that book and now, there was a new facility created for the winemaking at the hospice.
1: Yes. Uh, I think it was about 22 years ago or 23 years ago. A completely new winemaking facility was made, which is extremely clean and efficient. Um, since Christie's took over running the sale in 2005, we rapidly realised that some of the systems there did not work efficiently. For instance, the temperature control systems would sometimes go on the blink, and in the middle of the night, a vat which uh, should have been holding the temperature of the fermenting mustard, let's say, 28 degrees, would suddenly um, explode and the following morning it would be found that the vat had reached 38 degrees and fermentation had stopped. So this requires investment if you've got to change a system like that if it's only 15 years old. And therefore one of the areas where Christie's made an input, and I was involved in this, was stating to the hospice that basically if the hospice wished us to achieve really successful results at the sale and to increase the prices per barrel, For instance, when we took over the sale in 2005, the Savigny Les Bones were selling for less than €2,000 a barrel. Now, that is below the cost price of the hospice making the wine and cultivating the vineyards over a 12-month period. and They were seriously considering letting out the Savigny vineyards or diminishing the number of wines made from them because they were losing money every time. And Our feeling about it was that they shouldn't go that route at all. They should hold on to the vineyards. They should increase the quality of the wine being made and that we would communicate with consumers saying, look, here is an absolutely delicious wine from a lesser known village of the Côte de Beaune. And yes, it's going to cost three and a half or four thousand euros a barrel, but actually it's wonderful value for money and the wine will be delicious. You can achieve that if you can improve the quality that's going into the barrel. Roland Massa was the winemaker at the time and Antoine Jacquet, who's sadly no longer with us, who was the director at the time, took this on board. They also took on board that the sorting had to be more efficiently done so that. Any grey rot affected grapes should be left in the vineyards if possible. And this happened with the 2007 vintage. 2006 had been badly affected by several cuvées which had mould aromas to them. By 2007, the system had changed and the 2007 vintage was very clean and very delicious and it resulted in significant increases in the prices. And from 2007 vintage onwards, actually, the Christie's input started accelerating Diplomatically, we had an influence on what was happening uh, behind the scenes in terms of the winemaking, which when we first took the sale on, the result of the sale was approximately three and a half million euros. Uh, Last year, it was over 12 million euros.
0: Something that's interesting about your books, especially the 95 edition, is how aware you are of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay being grown in other parts of the world. You didn't hesitate to refer to where you saw some similarity or some difference into the emerging Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in Australia, in California, New Zealand, and other places. It did bring a kind of global flavor to it. You were talking about an old world wine region, but with some awareness that things were changing.
1: After the 1982 book came out, I was invited quite often to be one of the judges at international shows, particularly in Australia and in New Zealand. And the Australians absolutely loved the 82 Burgundy book because they very much like being able to have a dig at Europeans. And here was a book which was sort of critical of the old school of winemaking. And also, the scales fell from many of their eyes because many of them had been buying Burgundy and been disappointed. And suddenly they knew why. In the late 80s, of course, it was quite difficult for people outside Burgundy to bring off, to make a success of making Pinot Noirs. And often people talked about, it's a holy grail. And how do we do it? And the answer was that initially in California, for instance, a lot of people were bringing Cabernet winemaking methods to bear on the Pinot Noir grape. And that wasn't very successful. And also, they were growing Pinot in the hotter areas. And of course, you can't make a success of Pinot Noir in North Africa, or in the central or or northern part of Napa Valley, really. It's too hot for it, isn't it? It needs a, a cooler climate so it can have a long growing season. And people were discovering this, really, in Oregon, in California, in New Zealand, in Australia. And because I was involved in judging, I was often seeing Pinots and seeing the different successes they were making.
0: And someone that you met probably during that time that became a bit of an influence on you and a friend was James Halliday.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. Len Evans, James, and Brian Crozer were the three strongest judges at these Australian shows. It was a terrifying prospect, really, finding myself sitting next door to them because um, one would arrive in Australia terribly jet-lagged after twenty-two hours worth of travel or whatever, and within a day be catapulted into being a judge at this. So, if the Brit made some stupid mistake or failed to pick up Brett on a wine which the two Australian judges had spotted, then one felt like a complete worm. And um, so, James was was a great teacher, and I learnt a lot. from those Australian shows, actually. It helped me raise my game completely in terms of tasting, identifying faults, um, coming to a conclusion quite quickly, listening to other people. A lot of the Australians had formed their palates on burgundies. They knew exactly what the best wines of burgundy were. They knew about the disappointing ones as well. So they were trying to make pinots, which was going to be able to challenge and to be as delicious and good as what they could get in Burgundy. And also, sometimes better, because of course, there was lots of mediocre Burgundy around at the time. So quite often, some of these New World Pinots would turn out to be beautifully fruity and clean and fault-free, and the wine could be put next door to a Burgundy, which was uh, not exactly these things. And therefore, the New World winemaker was very pleased to find that they were making a good success of it.
0: When the 82 book was received, some people looked at U.S. scans for airing the dirty laundry. How was the 95 book received?
1: Uh, It was less controversial because although I told the same story so people would know about the history of Burgundy, it had been said before by me and by other people by this stage. So I was trying to broaden the book to make it a much more, A, there were many more growers being described in it, and B, it brought up to date some parts of Burgundy which hadn't been touched in the 82 version. For instance, I described in some detail biodynamism and what was happening in there and describe my own um, uncertainties about you know do i believe in this and how can it be possible that pluto or jupiter or saturn could influence what's going on in the grapes i can understand how the moon can influence because it influences the tides and it influences our bodily fluids therefore we can be influenced by the gravitational pull of the moon but i'm not quite sure about these distant planets on the other hand i had the experience of tasting with the late Anne-Claude Leflaive once where she was in the process of turning the Domaine Le Fleuve over towards biodynamism but she didn't do it straight away she did it initially on the Puligny Premier Cru Clavoyant and the batard Morachet. I tasted once with her a, a traditionally cultivated Puligny Clavoyant and a biodynamic Clavoyant and a traditional Bâtard and a biodynamically cultivated Bâtard and so the question was put was is there a difference between these two wines and if so do you prefer one or the other, and which do you think is which? So I tasted carefully and was convinced that there was a difference between the two wines. I did prefer one to the other, and I told her which one I preferred. And in both cases, I'd chosen the biodynamically cultivated wine. So that was quite an eye-opener. One may not believe in the influence of Saturn and Jupiter, but if actually what these people are doing in their vines is having a difference... And they are convinced that their vineyards are happier. And of course, one can see that the soil structure is more vibrant. And biodynamism can bring quality and and subtlety and finesse to wines, which I can't explain, but um, there we are.
0: It's really interesting to me that you were sort of the last major book on Burgundy before the Premox era. So you're published in 95, and of course, there's no mention of this. And then if you were to publish that book today, you would have to mention it.
1: Yes, that's a good. I hadn't thought about that. You're absolutely right. It seems to me that there are many factors that contribute to it. And just recently, I was tasting in Mercer with Antoine Jobard of Domaine François Jobar, as it used to be. His take on Premox, I don't think that domain has suffered from it particularly, but they've had one or two um, issues. But his take on it was that the scales fell from his eyes when he and his father started uncorking half bottles of all their different bottlings. When they were pouring from bottles, sometimes they would come across a problem I'm not sure which vintage we were talking about. But then when he would open the half bottles, there was never a problem. And he couldn't explain that, because the corks were from the same suppliers, and, and then he realized that actually, they'd changed their bottling machine at a certain stage, and they'd gone over to a more efficient, faster bottling machine. But that bottling machine couldn't take half bottles, so the half bottles were always bottled by hand. And these half bottles, which were bottled very carefully by hand, never gave them any premox problems. Whereas the big machine, which was so sophisticated, they concluded, mixed more oxygen in with the wine as it was going to the bottle. And this must have been uh, the, the reason. Now, I'd never heard that as an explanation for the problem before, because people talk about too much uh, lees rising, or they talk about diminishing the amount of sulfur. Or they talk about the problems of corks and paraffin and peroxide and all this sort of thing. All of these things are different reasons why other people explain Premox. So I think different things, of course, Premox with different domains and merchants. One can't simplify it down to one. It's not just to do with the problems of the corks. Certainly, sometimes it is. I mean, I only just recently, I took a case of Grand Cru White Burgundy back to a domain just two or three months ago. because. Some of the bottles were obviously, from looking at the colour, were fine, and some of them were yellow. And it was quite obvious that within these 12 bottles, there were four or five which were faulty, and seven which were okay. Well, that's not good enough. So we took the case back. The grower said, I'm really sorry. Um, Here's a case of 12 bottles of Grand Cru of a more recent vintage, and we'll swap it over, and please apologise to the client. So that will have been a problem of cork, won't it? Because in that same case, you've got five corks, which obviously have let... Them. So there's nothing to do with the bottling machine or the sulfur level or whatever. So it's a very complicated issue. But many people are now seeming to resolve it by moving on to Diem or to capsule closures or whatever, and therefore we're moving on from that. I think it was a big shame that the Burgundians could not get together to address the problem as a region. It was left to individual domains. To do it, and some people put their head in the sands like ostriches and said, no, "No, no, I've never had any problems with this, and I'm certainly not going to exchange your wine." Others were extremely open and said, "Look, I didn't understand what was going on, but now I think I've made some changes, and of course I want to make it good to your client." So we're still living through it, but there's a certain amount of Burgundians saying it's not a problem anymore. We res- that was the past. We've resolved the problem. They may have resolved it in their own cellars because they perhaps checked all their stock and. Uncorked and decanted anything which was faulty. It doesn't mean that the problem's been resolved in consumers' cellars, because at home people have got bottles of Premier Cru and Grand Cru burgundy which they bought in good faith, having been told that white burgundy will mature and improve over a six, eight, or ten year period. And it's only now that they're opening the Grand Cru's and discovering that, on the contrary, something they paid a lot of money for has prematurely oxidized. So the problem is still with merchants like us, because we're talking to the consumer who's still sometimes unhappy.
0: Sometimes people make the point that certain white burgundy producers are making a different kind of wine these days, a wine that can be drunk younger, because the consumer is actually looking to do this because they're worried about Premox and they're drinking the white wines younger because they don't want to keep them in the cellar. You were writing at that pre-Primox era, and so you would have seen the old school of white burgundy, and my question to you is, do you agree with that assessment, that there's a significant amount of white burgundy that's not made the same way as it was when you were writing these books.
1: I, I think that's probably, it's got to be right. Um, I was brought up by, I mean, one of the writers who I read a lot was Hugh Johnson. And one of the differences that Hugh Johnson makes between uh, white burgundy and Chardonnay's grown elsewhere is that the white burgundies will and can mature with bottle age. So in the 70s and the 80s, people were still definitely seeing that as the crux difference between white burgundy and new world chardonnays. The white burgundies will improve with bottle edge. Actually, because of Premox, this hasn't become the case. In spite of the Premox problems, the demand for white burgundy remains extremely high and extremely strong, which is sort of rather hard to explain, hard to justify. hard to. But it can only be justified by the fact that many, many people still find that White burgundy, you draw the cork and it's completely delicious and I've got to have another bottle tomorrow. So there is a lot of really good and delicious white burgundy around. I don't agree with some critics who would say that it's been a golden age for red burgundy, but it has not been a golden age for white burgundy in the last 20 years. I think, uh, yes, red burgundy has moved from being often problematic to being much more dependable. We've talked about this already. And white burgundy has been going through this problem. But there have been many growers who have still been making beautiful and delicious wines. 30 years ago, you had some people who were using 100% New Oak on Premier Cru Mersos, and these wines were immediately uncorked and drunk. So there have always been some people whose wines were destined to be drunk and were drunk young, and others who were not trying to do that at all. So I'm sure there's been an adaptation. And many people have been battling with what have been really serious issues, and sometimes commercially very dangerous for them. Because if a grower making a large numbers of Grand crus suddenly realizes that one whole vintage has been ruined by poor corks, were he to go public on that and say, actually, the whole of my vintage is faulty, he would find that a mass of people were bringing stock back and A, wouldn't have the stock to replace it, and B, wouldn't necessarily have the money to give them their money back. So that's one of the reasons why there's been quiet at this end of the link, because it's financially a very painful and difficult thing to do, to manage.
0: Another issue that's become more and more to the fore since you were writing was climate change. How much do you think that climate change was happening during the period that you were writing, but was maybe less commented on at that time in the 80s and the 90s? Do you think you were in a climate change period without realizing?
1: I think we were, because in the 1982 book, I talk about the reputation of Burgundy is based on a false premise. In fact, great and good wine is only made in Burgundy approximately three years out of ten. This was to do with the weather at the time, and also to do with the skills which were known and whatever. Now, one couldn't say that today. So we were talking about different climate in the 60s and the 70s, to what we've got now. But I wasn't aware of of um, when, the, yeah, when the book came out in the 80s and then in the 90s. By this stage, we were getting slightly more regular weather. But in the, 70s, the 60s and the 70s, it was a terrible period for uh, vintages. 63, 65, and 68 were really dreary, terrible vintages. There was some difficult weather conditions in the sixties and the seventies. We get getting into the eighties and the nineties, and since the turn of the millennium, we're into different weather patterns, aren't we?
0: So, if you were to write another edition of this book today, what do you think would be the defining topics of a next book?
1: It would need research on the ground, village by village, describing in detail now the probably the doubled numbers of domains who are able to make wine for bottling themselves and selling directly from the domain. What has changed since the 1982 edition is that more of the leading negociants have decided to purchase their own vineyards. Take an example of the Albert Bichot company in Burgundy. When I was first here, I don't think they owned vineyards at all. Since then, they've created a big domain of their own because they know that that is the best way to secure your sources of supply. Here you've got a shift in power between domains and negociants, which would need to be talked about. Uh, many negociants have had to recognize that actually uh, what people really want today is authentic Burgundy, and many consumers love the concept of the domain. Look at a firm like Maison Joseph Favelet, which has always owned 100 hectares or whatever, but when I was first in Burgundy, that's what they called themselves. They recently changed their name to be Domaine Favelet. So why did they do that? Well, we'd have to ask Erwan and Yves Favellet why they did it, but it'll be partly to do with the fact that Maison J Favolet doesn't really describe what they do anymore because something like 80% of their production comes from their own vineyards. Uh, if you look at Louis Jadot, for instance, which has had the benefit of massive American investment over many, many years... They have expanded and expanded their domain and they still are buying more vineyards. So those are two issues. An issue would certainly be telling the story of what's happened in terms of clonal selection and also massal selection in the last 20 years. There are about 25 or 30 or maybe 35 domains who've got together to say, look, we're going to retain the best pinots in our different domains breed from them and we're going to multiply them and we're going to make sure that they are virus free and we're going to be able to share amongst ourselves this multiplicity of pinots because we want to make sure that these are not lost and so that's been a, a really beneficial thing which is happening sort of off the radar it doesn't really get talked about um, one of the things which has improved enormously in recent years has been the quality of wine coming out at regional level Bourgogne Rouge, Bourgogne Haute de Beaune, Bourgogne Haute Cote de Nuit. And I've always thought it was extraordinary that to someone like Sainsbury and Carneros can make a really delicious Pinot Noir, and they just call it Pinot Noir. What you'd fail to have in Burgundy was anybody concentrating on making a really delicious Bourgogne Rouge. Well, that still doesn't really happen very much because everybody's so obsessed with trying to have either Grand Cruz or Premier Cruz or Village wines or whatever. So that will still dominate. But there isn't A single brand of Bourgogne Rouge, which is widely respected at this stage, perhaps that will never happen. But we do get more and more high quality wines being made at regional level. And that's really encouraging, really. But therefore, the excitement of Burgundy can be shared without it costing a fortune.
0: Anthony Hansen wrote the book on Burgundy, and he not only did it once, he did it twice. Thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Anthony Hansen of Haynes, Hansen & Clark and the Hong Kong Fine Wine Experience. This episode came together with a lot of help from the Wasserman family, who have helped countless writers and journalists learn more about Burgundy over the years.
1: Many people new to Burgundy are initially attracted by the great wines of the Côte de Nuits, the Grand Cru's and the Premier Cru's of the Côte de Nuits, and therefore Volnay and Pommard. Although these are the two villages which perhaps produce the most wonderful wines of of the Côte de Beaune. They don't have a vineyard attached to them, so you can't uh, link it in your mind with one particular vineyard and then think like you've got Gervais Chambertin or you've got chambol Musigny. The word Mouzigny and Chambol is associated with the village and therefore this helps to sell the commune-level wine. With Volnay, you've got four or five or six Premier Cru's right up there at the top level and another four or five or six that are slightly beneath it. In Pomar, as we know, the growers are trying to get Rougin and Epineau consecrated as Grand Cruze. Uh Pommard's in an interesting situation because it used to be the village of the Côte de Beaune, which was very much in demand in the 50s and the 60s, because Pommard was a very easy word to say. In English-speaking countries, everybody could pronounce Pommard, uh, whereas it's not the same with Ossidioris or Pernod Virgilis or something. And The wines, because they were quite structured and quite tannic, they were often Export satisfactorily; they were quite strong on export markets. It then it became a bit unfashionable. I'm not quite sure why Pommard became unfashionable, but Volnay, perhaps because Volnay has got four or five top estates which were absolutely making wonderful wine. We've talked about De Monti, we've talked about Danglarsville. We must also mention Michel Lafarge. And we must mention Domaine de la Pousteau, which when Gérard Potel took it over and built it up from 1964 onwards, became one of the the four or five great domains of Volnay. And now you have some others coming on board, uh, like Thomas Boulet, I should declare an interest because we import his wine into the UK, but some lesser known, slightly, what used to be off-the-radar domains in Volnay, which are also up there making very beautiful wines now. So volnay has got four famous old estates and also, the wines, of course, are quite different, aren't they, between Volnay and Pommard? And in Volnay, just like with chambon mosigny we can talk about a village producing some of the finest and most perfumed and subtle and delicate wines. And therefore, that's something to home in on. Whereas Pommard can get a bit muddled up with the Cortons or chassin montrachet which can be quite tannic. But winemaking is being adapted a bit in Pommard. So the wines are being made to be more attractive when youthful, to be less strongly structured with sometimes slightly rustic tannins on the finish. Uh, Some of the growers have moved on a bit to make slightly more user-friendly wines.